Second Samuel chapter eight. We're going to try to cover three chapters tonight. Joe, why don't you grab my watch right there and hand it to me? You're going to want me to have the watch. Not that I ever look at it anyway, or let it affect what I plan to do. Uh, no, I do. I do look at it and try to stay within reason. Second uh, Samuel 8 through 10. I am one of many, I am sure, who has always been attracted to David. He has always been, for me, an intriguing individual, um, one who, who really seizes the imagination and uh, who is admirable in so many ways. Uh, but prior to the study that we have been involved in, in, in uh, second, First and Second Samuel, I was not as aware as I am today of the depth of his character and the breadth of his qualities. Think of the giftedness of this man, David. Here's a person who clearly is intellectually of the first order. Uh, demonstrates that by his cleverness over and over again, especially when Saul was in pursuit of him. But here's also a man who's a musician, who plays a harp with such skill that his bitter enemy is soothed and calmed by it, who wrote a third of the Psalter, so he's a poet. He's an excellent athlete. He is able to take a sling and uh, place a stone in the center of the forehead of his uh, opponent and uh, did similar things as a shepherd. And so he's also a caretaker of animals. He's a great and courageous fighter, willing to take on the giant as he was. So not only a wonderful athlete, but a great warrior, a commander of groups of men in battle. So here, here is a man with, uh, with tremendous gifts. I mean, usually we become, we come packaged one way or another. We're either the emotive, sensitive, artistic uh, type, or we are the, the sort of driven and ath athletic and, and uh, that, that other strong, that strong kind of uh, focused personality. But here's somebody who apparently puts it all together in one package. A man, man of remarkable gifts, remarkable abilities, a renaissance man in the truest sense, but it doesn't by any means stop there. If it stopped there, well, he would just be one of many people who've had great gifts and great abilities. But it doesn't stop there at all because there is also character. What, uh, what a man of zeal for God's glory. You remember with Goliath, how when he saw Goliath defying Israel's armies, he could not contain himself. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And this is a man with, with great zeal for God's glory and for God's kingdom. You remember when the, the news was brought to him of the death of Saul and of, of Jonathan, his son, and David on the spot wrote that lament in which he said with such perception and insight, tell it not in Gath. Oh, don't let the people in Ascalon, don't let the Philistines learn of this, uh, this uh, tragic loss in battle, lest they heap scorn and, and ridicule on the people of God. 
Even though it was the death of one who was, who was seeking his, his death. Um, think of the, the, the man's faith as God gave him clearly at least two opportunities to kill the man who was seeking to kill him and yet said he would not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. He was going to wait for God's timing. An extraordinarily difficult thing to do. Uh, think of his dependence upon God's guidance. Though he was so white and so shrewd, frequently we read of him inquiring of the Lord before he will take a step. Uh, we saw in the last few weeks his gratitude to God upon his ascension to the throne in Jerusalem. He looked around for something that he could do in return, and so he brought the ark into Jerusalem and then inquired as to whether or not God might let him be the one who would build the temple. And then his humility when God told him no, and yet God promised to build him a house rather than David building God a house, he said, who am I? And what is my house that you should do such Wonderful things for me. He's a uniquely outstanding, winsome, appealing, and admirable person. One of the most so, I think, in all of the, the annals of recorded human history. And yet, as we look at section that uh, we have numbered 1 Samuel 8 through 10, we need to do so aware of what is coming next. What comes in chapter 11, Bathsheba. And chapters 8 through 10 only reinforce our perceptions up to, the point, up to, up to this point. And that's what, how I think they're functioning in 2 Samuel. In chapters 8 through 10, it is only going to reinforce and support our perception of David as one of the most outstanding people that we have ever, ever encountered. All of that is setting us up for the great, tragic fall of 2 Samuel chapter 11. So I want you to keep that in mind as we progress and think what is the purpose of God in setting us up for this tragic fall that comes about in David's life. Well, let's begin in chapter 8. We were told in 7.1 that David was given rest from all of his enemies, rest on every side. I think that we need to interpret that as meaning that, he, uh, that the rest that God gave him, gave him was in terms of the internal politics of Judah and Israel. He was given rest from his enemies within the nation and then a local sense of rest from the immediate enemies of the people of God. And then we pick up where the battles left off at the end of chapter 5, we pick up again in, in chapter 8, remembering that 2 Samuel is only roughly chronological, it's also thematic. And so we drop the theme of the battles in order to get the more important stuff about the ark and the temple, and now we're coming back to, to uh, sweep up, as it were, mop up uh, the battlefield situation that we left behind back in chapter chapter 5. Now this is what we're told in chapter 8. We're not going to get into it in any detail. Verses 1 through 14, we are told of the subjugation of David's enemies. Chapter 1, he strikes out to the west and defeats the Philistines. Verse 2, to the southeast against Moab, the, the uh, difficulty of that battle is recorded 
in Psalm 60. And I just want to just note that because it, it, it describes desperate situations. When we read about these battles that David wins, we need to realize these were long and difficult and trying battles. Battles at certain points at which David b- believed he was going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And he was often fighting against superior armies with superior numbers, superior weaponry uh, that, were, uh, that were expressions of superior, at least technologically speaking, superior civilizations with chariots and horsemen. And so he's often winning these battles against overwhelming odds at great cost and sacrifice and with great difficulty. And Psalm 60 will repay reading when you get home this evening. Verses 3 and 4, he strikes to the north at Zobah, and we're told there that David rules from the river, which is a reference to the Euphrates, as was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Verses 5 through 8, he strikes to the northeast against the Arameans, also called the Syrians. Verses 9 through 11, further north to Hamath. And then 12 through 14, he strikes to the southeast, to the east, and to the south at Edom, Ammon, and Amalek. And then in chapter 10, we're given the details of the defeat of Ammon and of Syria. And so chapter 8 and then chapter 10, two complete chapters are given to giving us the details, some of the details of David's military campaigns as the king over all of Israel. Now, that's about all we're going to say about it. And one reason why we're not going to say a lot about it, because this could not contrast more starkly with secular history. Right now I'm reading a one-volume history of World War I. Never have read much about World War I. I'm astonished at the carnage, uh, the the loss in the tens of thousands on single days in single battles of World War I. Men just coming out of the trenches and being mowed down in rows and just senselessly coming out of the trenches, marching forward, row, row after row being just mowed down by machine guns. Generals seemingly unable to adjust to the tactics. And this one-volume history goes into the tactics and one volume barely begins to scrape the surface of the First World War. As detailed as it is, the personalities, the, the tactics, the, the progress of the battles, and, and the, the, the personalities involved, secular history goes into to great detail about the battles. It glorifies the battlefield. It honors the, those who are the combatants in, in, in battles. And there's something right and proper and all of that uh, about this. But what stands out here in the s- sacred historian's uh, account of all of the, the battles of the great warrior David is there's virtually nothing said in comparison with everything else that we're told about David's life. We started looking at David, the second half of 1 Samuel, and he's going to take us all the way to the, the, the end of, of 2 Samuel, and we just get this little bit about uh, David's battles his great military victories that went on for years, taking, taking years and years to accomplish. Much of his reign was probably taken up in these battles. Nothing about David's tactics. Nothing about David's brilliance. Nothing about David's courage. Instead, what we're told, and this seems to be the point, 
We're told in verse 6 of chapter 8, at the end of verse 6, after telling us that David put garrisons in Syria, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. Then in verse 14, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. It's as though that's all we really need to know about why they won. You want to know why they won? We're not going to tell you about all the sacrifice. We're not going to tell you about the brilliant tactics. We're not going to tell you about the courageous fighting. Uh, The reason why they won is, that's it, the Lord helped David wherever he went. And that's all that really God wants us to know about it. Uh, The importance of these battles is completely minimized. And instead, what the sacred historian does is he concentrates on something else. What's he concentrating on? Character. He didn't care at all about all of the flashy victories of David. Uh, We were talking about this the other night. Uh, The things that God cares about versus the things that we care about. And uh, I was uh, complaining, as I usually do, as I was talking about the church, not this church, but the church generally, you know, just uh, complaining and whining about how that, uh, you know, there's so many ministries now that seem to be led by egomaniacs, you know, and it just drives me crazy. Uh, Big, puffed-up preachers who are too big for their own britches, uh, who uh, think they're God's gift to the church, who are incredibly lacking, it seems, in humility, uh, who are proud, who are unapproachable. And uh, God, maybe you think all that about me. I don't know. But I, I just, you know, and, I, and, I, and, and then, the, and then that, that uh, you know, and God has a way of bringing people into your lives. And there's a few people he's, he's brought into my life. And I look at those people and I say, you know, there is the, the, the quietest and yet most godly, solid, wonderful, um, timid, but just wonderful person I've ever met. Has very little in the way of giftedness, but that is a man or that is a woman of God. And I'll, I, would, I, would, I would guess that come the judgment day, just like it's reflected here, none of the, the flash and the worldly pomp and celebration of human uh, accomplishments and human giftedness. Instead, come Judgment Day, God is going to reward and bless and exalt that very humble, quiet, timid, unassuming, virtually ungifted, boring little person who has been faithful and done their duty and done the right thing year after year and prayed and worshipped and honored God and sought to be a witness with their little bit of giftedness, but they served. And, and uh, you know, more and more for me, those are the people that I appreciate, that I love, that I admire, because... They are a reflection of the things that really count. And then when over against that, you see great giftedness and great abilities and great skills and intelligence and articulation and all of these things. And then it is joined to pride 
and self-centeredness and ego. I just think we have so missed, so missed the boat. And even in the American evangelical world, it seems to me this is the thing that we reward. This is the thing that we exalt. We have a, just like in Hollywood, we have a cult of personality. We puff up and pump up and exalt and put on the pedestal people who are not worthy of being on that pedestal. And down they come falling again and again to our shame and our embarrassment. But half of the fault is that we've put them there. We've raised them up and put them in this high place that they don't belong. And we put them there, not for their great godliness, but because we see now there's, a, there's somebody with a real great personality and a real great speaking ability, and he could really draw a crowd, and he's really got some gifts. That, uh, that person will be able to really do some things for God. And we're not, uh, we're, not, uh, we're not thinking about the real things that count, the character matters, the things that God counts about, uh, thinks about the most. And, uh, and I think it's fascinating here that of all of the military, worldly accomplishments that the secular historian would have used to build his story around. If the secular historian had been writing this, the center point would have been David's military victories over the pagans. And we would have gotten all the details and all of the, uh, the exploits of David as he led the men into battle and charged up San Juan Hill, as it were, and captured the flag and defeated the enemies. And, and we would have gotten all of the particulars of that. And that would have gone on for chapter after chapter of glorious victory after victory of David as, he, as, he, as his gifts were shining in battle. Instead of that, we just get the very briefest of, uh, of mentioning of his exploits. Because the historian is concerned about other matters, and the things that he cares about are, are matters of character and of godliness and of the progress of the kingdom of God in David's heart and the progress of the kingdom of God through the nation of Israel. So in chapter 9 through chapter 10, verse 5, then we are given further insight into David's character. Having told us of these victories in a rather cursory manner, and then said that really it was God who did it anyway, and David was able to succeed as he did because the Lord helped David wherever he went, then we're giving, given two examples of David's character. First, David's kindness to the house of Saul, and then secondly, David's kindness to Hanan of the Ammonites. Let's uh, start reading now at chapter 9, verse 1. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, in Lodibar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, from Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. Now, the context that we need to understand behind this event 
is that Mephibosheth, as a son of Saul and son of Jonathan, is a possible rival to the throne. He is the grandson of the man who persecuted David, a grandson of Saul. He is a nephew of his rival Ishbosheth, against whom civil war was prosecuted in the early chapters of 2 Samuel. And Mephibosheth is defenseless, and he has no claim on David, and David has been hardened by years of war, and he is busy uh, running his kingdom. And yet, David is a man of such character and such quality that it comes into his heart, it comes to mind that there is something left undone, that there is still yet something that he ought to do as an expression of gratitude to God and of love for Jonathan and love for Saul, that he, he, he begins to look cast about to, to wonder, is there some way that I can show kindness? Verse 1, the word there is hesed. That's the Old Testament word for grace. The loving kindness, typically translated in the King James Version. The loving kindness. Loving kindness of God. The hesed of God. The grace of God. Is there someone that I may show kindness, hesed, grace, for Jonathan's sake? Verse 3. Is there not yet anyone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And I think what's behind that phrase, the kindness of God, is that David, you see, is, in a, is a person who himself has experienced the grace of God. He has experienced the kindness of God in his own heart. And he has received it in, within his family and, and, and in, in the, the progress of his life now consummated as king over all of Israel and victor over all of his enemies. And having experienced that grace of God Himself, having experienced God's loving kindness, His hesed, His, uh, His grace, His mercy, His goodness, David wants to share that grace with somebody else. Which is always the case. No one who has ever truly known God's forgiveness and kindness can ever withhold it from others. And this is the point of uh, one of Jesus' parables, wasn't it? When he talked about the person who was forgiven, forgiving others. You have received this, uh, this mountain of forgiveness. How can you not give in return the, the little anthill of forgiveness that's required of you and your relationships with one another? The assumption behind that parable is if you have received the grace of God, you give the grace of God. If you have received forgiveness, you give forgiveness. And David we are learning yet again, is one who is so full of the grace of God, so full of the mercy and the loving kindness of God, that he begins, even as this great king running his kingdom, hardened by war, he begins to look around at his, at his rival's household as, at, at, for, for someone to whom he might yet again show kindness. And heaven knows David has reasons to be embittered against the house of Saul. And he has reasons for bearing the grudge. Saul kept David on the run for years. David was a fugitive. David was in disgrace. David was living in caves. David's family was uprooted and forced to flee. 
Circumstances have been terrible for, for David because of Saul. He has reasons to want to avenge rather than to bless. And yet uh, David is a person of such quality that, that he seeks to show kindness to him instead. And so we read in verse 7, David said to him, Do not fear. He calms him down. Mephibosheth doesn't know if David's going to slit his throat, as it were, at that point, because he is a living descendant of his, of his rival. Do not fear, for I will show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. That, that is, he is granting to him virtually the privilege of a son to eat at table with David. And it says in verse 8, And, and he, Mephibosheth, prostrated himself and said, What is your servant? that you should regard a dead dog like me. There's the spirit of David himself. Who am I and what is my house that you should do these things to me? And in verses 9 through 10, he provides Ziba to care for the properties, probably because Mephibosheth would have no ability to take care of his grandfather Saul's former properties. In verse 13 we read, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, and he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. Now the reason why the sacred author emphasizes that is because people were superstitious about those who were crippled. And it's, there should be an, an exclamation point at the end of the sentence. It's David does all this even though this is somebody who was crippled. Even though he was lame in both his feet. That on top of everything else. In spite of the fact this is a grandson of Saul, even, even that plus he was a cripple. One who would normally be despised and excluded and cast off, David brings him into his house and sits him at his very table. It's a picture, is it not, of the love of Christ. David is so messianic in his typification now of the grace of God, that it's a reminder of us of our own unworthiness of His blessing and of the right to come and to sit at table with Him. And then the second event is found in chapter 2 with Hanan of the, the Ammonites. We're told there it happened afterwards. The king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, became king in his place. And David said, I will show kindness. There's the word again, hesed, to Hanan, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. Now, what likely is here in the background, uh, the Ammonites are that people who went to the people of Jabesh-Gilead and demanded their right eyes. They wanted them to pluck out their right eyes as the price of not attacking them. And Saul then defeated them. So probably Hanan's father, Nahash, and David were allies of some sort against Saul, Nahash was kind, we don't know exactly how, but somehow was kind to David during David's years as a fugitive from Saul. And so Nahash dies, his son Hanan comes to the throne in his place, and David observes that that happens, and he says, I want to do something kind. I want to pay back, as it were. I want to express some kindness because his father was so kind to me. So David sent, it says, some of his servants to console him 
concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? They completely misinterpret what David is doing. So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half of their beards and cut off their garments. You see, a beard is in the ancient world is a man's chief ornamentation. Where the woman was her long hair, the man it was his beard. To cut off the beard, you could hardly do anything that would be of greater disgrace to a man in the ancient world. They cut off half their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. And when they told it to David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards grow and then return. So David wants to show kindness. It's utterly rebuffed. One of the commentators said, not, it was not even declined with civility. It was repelled, that is his kindness, was repelled with scorn. Uh, they falsely accuse him of questionable, or rather ungodly and uh, uh, destructive motives, and, uh, and humiliate his servants. And the response then by David is, first of all, to take care of his men. He waits until their beards grow back before he's going to begin to take corrective action. The, the Ammonites then plan for war against David. They hear that David is very disturbed about this. In verses 7 through 19, a great victory is won over the Ammonites. A very difficult battle, apparently, once again. And uh, in, in verse verse. Uh, uh, Verse 12, Joab, jo, verse 12, Joab is saying to the men, Be strong and courageous and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our God and for the cities of God. And may the Lord do what is right in His sight. And so D Joab uh, taking the lead uh, in that battle. And yet David there uh, fighting along with his men in verse 17 as they engage in battle with the Syrians. And David, it says, killed 700 charioteers of the of the Syrians. David, not just sending his men, but also himself engaged, engaged in battle. So what do we learn in these, these chapters about David? Uh, we learn that he was a great warrior, but that's not what they're concerned about. That's not what the sacred writer is concerned about. What we learn is that David, in, in addition to everything else that we've learned about his zeal, about his faith, about his dependence upon God, his gratitude, his humility, about all his giftedness, we learn as well that David is a gracious and kind and sensitive individual who remembers kindness shown to him, who's received when he receives kindness from others, wants to pay kindness back because he has received the kindness of God, wants to express and give that kindness himself back to others. And I think the point is if this David if even this David, this great, outstanding, godly, humble, wonderful David, 
is going to do the deeds of chapter 11. Sin with Bathsheba. Murder her husband. Deceive the nation. If even that David can fall into that sin, then let the one thinks, who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. If even that, that man of God can fall into sin, then is there any room in any one of us for any sense of self-sufficiency, spiritual pride, boasting in our strength, boasting in our wisdom, boasting that we're above reproach? Is there any room or excuse for us thinking that we're beyond certain temptations, beyond certain sins, becoming careless, becoming negligent, becoming lazy and slothful spiritually, beginning to neglect the ordinances of God, backing off our commitments to worship and to the study of the Scriptures? Is there any excuse if any one of us begins to flirt with materialism or flirt with sensuality, begin to let our eyes wander and to begin to read things we shouldn't read and begin to indulge in silly comments and office talk and uh, crude and coarse jesting? Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If it could happen even to the great, great King David, then God help me. And may I live all of my life on my knees, begging that God will never let me fall. As we pray together, Oh, Lord, we pray that we would be a careful people. We so admire and love your servant David, chiefly because he anticipates the Lord Jesus Christ himself in so many of his virtues, and yet he was not the Christ, and how he did fall. And oh, Lord, what tragedy he brought because he did. And what a reminder for us upon whom the end of the ages have come. What a reminder of our own frailty and weakness. Oh, Lord, give us strength and humility that in the power of the Holy Spirit we might stand and never fall. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.